It's interesting how much we've talked about companionship, isn't it, today, that actually it boils down to, in the end, we're social animals. We're hardwired to work in groups. That's what's made us survive through evolution. And it turns out that's still our superpower, still our strength, even when we're dealing with the very end of life and bereavement and the aftermath of somebody dying. Hello and welcome back to Mind on the Matter. My name's Tuba Khan and I'm currently a final year medical student at King's College London. I did not predict there was going to be a season two, so I just want to say hello to all the new listeners and welcome back to those who have joined us from previous episodes. I hope you all managed to have wonderful summers. I've just about recovered from my sister's wedding, which was absolutely incredible and full of so much love and joy, which actually a lot of people may consider as the opposite of what we're going to talk about today, which is dying and death. In this episode, I talked to the wonderful Dr. Catherine Mannix, who has recently retired from being a palliative care consultant to go on to write one of my favourite books called With the End in Mind, and her aim is to change people's perceptions of dying. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much. I don't know if you heard that, but I heard that. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. I just wanted to start by talking about who you are so we can tell our listeners a little bit about you. Sure, Tuba. Thank you so much for inviting me. I used to be a consultant in palliative medicine. I worked for 30 years in palliative care and I took early retirement to see whether there was anything I could offer into the public discussion of dying that might, I don't know, decatastrophize people's expectations in some way. So that's what I've been doing for the last, oh, four years. Gosh, that's gone by in a real flash. And I've done a, a variety of things, but probably the most exciting thing has been that I got the opportunity to write a book. And I'm a massive fan of your book, which we will go on to talk about. But first, how would you describe palliative care? Because I know a lot of people have negative connotations with palliative care because they think it's about death and that's a bad thing, but it's actually the opposite. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing trying to help people to understand what we really do. Palliative care is really about management of symptoms it's about helping people to live their best life and certainly in the team where I worked we would meet people at all stages of any illness and in particular maybe the thing that would surprise people who don't know about palliative care but think that they do is that we would work with people with newly diagnosed cancers who were planned to have treatment with curative intent But because of the symptoms that they presented with or the need for rapid recovery in order to get into oncological treatments after a primary surgical procedure, they would need really excellent symptom management to get them well enough to have quite grueling treatments which would cure their illness. So palliative care is about symptoms. It's about enabling people to have the least possible symptom burden and to live the best possible life alongside whatever symptoms they do still have to tolerate. And obviously the best way to get rid of symptoms is to get rid of the illness that the person has. So the the best way to treat symptoms of heart failure is to treat their heart failure and the best way to treat symptoms of cancer is to cure the cancer. So we do meet a lot of people with advanced disease advanced disease is more likely to be towards the end of people's lives so we do meet a lot of people who are dying 
but we don't meet them because they're dying and they're absolutely not obliged to die just because they've seen the palliative care team. Yeah, I think a lot of people associate palliative care with end of life and death and hence that's where the fear comes from. What made you want to specialise in this field? That's that's a good question because there was there, there was nothing called palliative care when I first felt interest in this area of, of clinical medicine. I did my postgraduate exams and started off as a very junior doctor in oncology after you know a few years in internal medicine to do my membership of the Royal College of Physicians exam and oncology was the thing that I set out to do. But during my first year in oncology, what I discovered was that actually the care of the people who were not going to be cured and the real importance of the quality of life that they were able to have and the time with their families and doing the things that really mattered to them was just so much more interesting. So around the time that I was making that discovery, a hospice was built not far from where I live. So I went along to do a bit of exploring about, you know, whether they had capacity for uh, a junior doctor, because I would have obviously had to be a junior doctor at that stage in my career. I was very lucky that they actually, they created a junior doctor job. They created a registrar post. So I went to work in a hospice um, at a time when it was called working in a hospice. And later on that year, the Association for Palliative Medicine for Britain and Ireland was inaugurated. So I'm a founder member of that. Makes me feel incredibly old. But it was all very new and very exciting at the time, trying to work out what the specialty should be called, college recognising it, first of all, as a subspecialty. And then a few years later, as a specialty in its own right, and describing higher professional training. The training itself wasn't described whilst I was doing training. I knitted my own scheme, which was, again, really exciting and, and a very interesting thing to do. And one of the things that I enjoyed most of all during that was to spend six months with a psychiatry team, because I realised that we had a lot of challenges in managing people's emotional well-being. And I hoped that I'd learned some skills from a psychiatry team. I got far more from them than I could ever have dreamt. And in particular, a knowledge and an insight into cognitive therapy, which was their primary mode of treatment in, in the team that I went to work with. So I then went on and took a qualification in cognitive behaviour therapy that's been a, a really enormous part of my clinical practice and my research since then. I think it's easy to forget that medicine is always evolving and it's crazy to think that palliative care didn't exist because of course it should, it's so important, but that's amazing that you were one of the first people to have founded it. Now, cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT, that it's otherwise known as, is a talking therapy that helps to change the way you think, because it's based on the idea that your thoughts are directly connected to the way you behave. That was a very basic explanation. Could you tell us a bit more about what it involves? I guess it is. What it's really doing is it's helping people to think about the way they think, and it's helping people to notice the way they behave. So if, if you take a very simple example, if you think of somebody who has anxiety about sitting their driving test, okay, and the day of getting to the driving test gets closer and closer and they're doing extra practice and they're staying up late 
re-swatting all of the highway code because they passed the first part exam but what happens if they come across a weird sign in the in the actual driving exam and then the morning comes of the driving test and they can't settle they haven't slept all night the night before they keep thinking about all the things that could go wrong how humiliating it'll be to have to go into work or into college afterwards and tell people that they didn't pass they start to notice their tummy is clenching up and they're feeling a bit breathless and they're sweaty and eventually they're start starting to feel really nauseated and they realize they can't possibly drive in this state and they phone the test center and they cancel the test and immediately all their symptoms go away and then they realize that this happened the last time and they canceled their test and it happened the time before and they canceled their test and they're in this loop of thinking about how it could go wrong rather than thinking about the amount of practice that they've had and everything they already know but they haven't noticed that their thinking is biased they've just been immersed in this biased thinking they experience all of the physical manifestations of being anxious and their overwhelming anxiety is driven by their thinking about how everything can go wrong and it will go wrong and it'll all be a disaster so they've got this physiological anxiety response as well and eventually the whole burden becomes intolerable but they've got this escape route where they can just cancel the test and now all the stimulus is gone and everything calms down so cognitive therapy would help that person to notice first of all that although all of the thoughts they were thinking were potentially true, they might fail and they might feel embarrassed when they had to tell people. They'd ignored all of the other potential thoughts like they might pass. And it might actually be a doddle because they've done so much extra practicing because they keep cancelling the test. So they've had all these extra driving school hours and the physical symptoms that they're feeling, which sure would make it a little bit more difficult to engage in the driving test but actually we've all had things that we've been nervous about and what we found is when we've got into the situation we've been so focused on the situation that our focus on the physical symptoms drops away and they don't disturb us that much in the real moment and that behavior of first of all ruminating on what could go wrong and then eventually the protection behavior of cancelling the test those are counterproductive behaviors and could we do something else like notice that we're ruminating and change that behavior into thinking about how great it's going to be when i have passed the test and the things i'm going to be able to do once i'm a qualified driver and what could i do instead of cancelling the test what could i do to calm myself to get out in the fresh air, to take some deep breaths, to centre my mind, to get there good and early so I'm not worrying about being late, and then to do some calming exercises when I get there. So noticing the way we're thinking, noticing the way we're behaving, and the consequences of those, both on our emotional selves and on our physical sensations, helps us to be able to choose more wisely where to put our focus. So it's all about giving people insight. And how do you incorporate CBT into your palliative care practice? I use it in, in two ways, really. So one of the ways is to run a cognitive therapy clinic. So that is absolutely about CBT. People come, uh, they've been referred by their GP, their palliative care nurse specialist, a, a colleague in the hospital, whoever. And the clinic is on hospice premises. So first of all, that 
surprises people because actually they don't realise that hospices do outpatient work. They think you go to a hospice to die, like our previous conversation about you see palliative care people because you're dying. So the idea that you're coming up to a clinic and the person who's seeing you is anticipating that there's going to be a series of appointments over a number of weeks is the first undermining of that, oh, well, I must be going to die very soon because I've been sent for by a hospice. So again, you can see how just helping people to say that thought out loud and think it through helps them to examine the fact that they were thinking that, that there was a whole set of assumptions there that they just believed without testing them. So the clinic might be straightforward dealing with anxiety or depression, things that we would think of as the emotional disorders, which is what cognitive behaviour therapy was first developed for by psychotherapists. But also I use cognitive therapy as um, maybe a first aid kit, if you like, alongside the rest of my clinical practice. You might have a patient whose pain is getting worse and actually the next step in their pain management is going to be to suggest that rather than just paracetamol and non-steroidals, we're going to, going to try a little bit of morphine and see if that takes the pain away. And here's a person who completely is sure that as soon as you start morphine, that's definitely the downward trajectory and it's dangerous and it kills people and everybody I've ever known who's taken morphine died. Okay, so here's a dysfunctional thought, an inaccurate thought, but it's really, really important to this person. It's frightening them. They don't want to take the morphine. They prefer to have the pain in some way that seems safer to them than taking the morphine. So we can use the techniques from cognitive therapy to help that person to explore their beliefs around morphine and then to find out whether there are any other pieces of information that might help them to get that belief in balance. For example, when they first woke up from their surgery for their bowel cancer, they had a, 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 an infusion of anaesthetic. They had a button that they could press for patient-controlled analgesia, a PCA. And each time they were uncomfortable, they could press that button and they would be given a little dose of painkiller. Yes, they remember that. And it was good and it helped them. Good, good. What do you think that painkiller was? And now they remember, yeah, that was morphine, wasn't it? Yeah, so, okay, so you've already had morphine. It didn't have terrible side effects for you. It took your pain away and you didn't die afterwards. Actually, you carried on recovering from your surgery and got better. So could there be a different way of thinking about this anxiety you've got about morphine? Could there be a way we could do an experiment with maybe taking a little dose even now while you're going to be you know, here for the next little while so we can keep an eye on you, see how you go? So what we're doing is helping people to recalibrate the way they believe something, the other evidence there could be to consider, the ways that they could experiment with different ways of behaving that are just gentle steps into a different way of being rather than just saying, oh, well, come on. You need to take this morphine, get a grip, which doesn't help them to feel safe. So cognitive therapy is first aid integrated into daily practice and then cognitive therapy as a standalone therapy in its own right. Now that you've explained it, I can see how CBT is vital in palliative care, really. And just for visualisation purposes, in the hospitals, there's no actual dedicated palliative care ward, is there? It's becoming a much more mixed model than that. So a lot of hospitals, palliative care is a liaison service. Well, every hospital has a palliative care liaison service. But some hospitals now do have a palliative care ward or a set of beds. And 
you're right, for most of us, our intensive care beds for palliative care are hospices and they're often not on the premises. And that's a mixed blessing because it means that the hospices funded by charities can also provide other sorts of comfort care that NHS funding won't stretch to. So they're usually lovely environments and as well as a dedicated multi-professional team of palliative care experts, there are other things going on like aromatherapies or relaxation classes or your volunteers coming in to do beauty therapies things like that so lots of lovely quality of life enhancing distracting things going on whereas when we have dedicated beds in a hospital we have access to a multi-professional team but it's staffed at NHS hospital levels and sometimes that doesn't allow the amount of one-to-one time that some palliative care patients require. But on the other hand, it means that they can remain under the care of a team that they've known for a long time and don't have to establish new relationships. The advantage, I think, of palliative care as a liaison service, though, is that it starts to communicate across the hospital. Actually, palliation of symptoms is everybody's business. And we will come and support you and enhance the care you're able to give if you've reached the limits of what you know and the person's symptoms are not yet palliated. So if you think about a parallel with the other specialties, all of us will have patients, for example, with heart failure under our care. But once it starts to become more complicated, once they're not responding to the combinations of drugs that we feel uh, comfortable and knowledgeable to, to prescribe for them, we'd have no hesitation at all about getting a cardiology colleague to come along and see the patient or send the patient along to a cardiology outpatient clinic. And then one of two things might happen. The cardiologist might simply give us advice uh, and we will carry on managing the patient, but we've now got the benefit of their specialist advice. Or the cardiologist might actually look at this person and their investigations and say, you know what, this is really highly specialist now. I'll take over the management of their heart failure. So palliative care, I think, should be working in the same way that the, the science and art of symptom management should be part of medical school curriculum, nursing school curriculum, paramedics should all know some rudiments of palliation and that the specialists can come along and dip in and out, give advice to the people who are already looking after that person, whether that's their primary care team or, you know, care of the elderly team, respiratory team, gastro team, whoever. But there will be a small proportion of people who have palliative care needs, whose needs are so complex, either physically or emotionally or in terms of family dynamics, that actually they need to be surrounded by that level of expertise. And it may be that they need that 24-7 as inpatients, in which case we need a properly funded, properly structured bed situation. And at the moment, largely that level of expertise is found not in hospital beds, but in community setting hospice beds. But increasingly, there are units in hospitals that will offer that. Do we have any shortage in hospice beds? It depends what we think hospice beds are for. And this is a really interesting question and and one that the specialty is asking itself all the time. If 
the beds are about symptom management, then we are probably a little bit short. If the beds are about people thinking, when I die, I'd like to be in the beautiful surroundings of a hospice and not on a noisy hospital ward and not in my house with too many stairs and not enough help, then we will never have enough hospice beds. So we need to think about how we deal with the end of life needs of people who require excellent, attentive nursing care with possibly a little bit of symptom management, which isn't specialist palliative care, but it is definitely the kind of end of life care that almost all of us will need. Are we able adequately to provide that for everybody in the population? I don't think that we are. But if we think about do we have enough specialists in palliative care to take that care to the bed that the person happens to be in, we're probably closer to the right number. But what COVID showed us was that when we have large numbers of people who need that kind of care, the system becomes overwhelmed and numbers will rise because the population is ageing. We can keep people alive for two or three more decades than we could even you know 50 years ago and when we get extra decades of life we don't get our 20s over again you know we get our 80s and 90s and we have centigenarians and they are collecting conditions their bodies are starting to fail it's complicated they've got interacting disabilities and conditions so the need for complex palliative care will also grow as our population changes and we know that we're on the edge of a real demographic challenge and we're going to need many more specialists in palliative care and it's the it's the practitioners i think more than the beds that's going to be the challenge we need to have enough practitioners to get to get the care to the place where people need it yeah i hadn't really thought of it like that before but it makes sense to incorporate palliative care into all training for example at medical school when you're a junior doctor because no matter what specialty you go into you will face patients that are dying and as an aging population like you mentioned we should all be better equipped to be able to deal with it and make their journey as peaceful as possible yeah that's absolutely right and they're not always obvious specialties so you think about rheumatology joint pain changing mobility changing the way people manage their activities of daily living that's all part of rheumatology and a lot of patients with rheumatological diseases have connective tissue diseases that are changing them physiologically in lots of other ways so really um, sharp end rheumatology for people with long-term rheumatological conditions includes quite a lot of palliative care and we could reduce the demand on palliative care specialists by augmenting the training of people in those specialties that are going to need to weave palliative care into their practice for some of their patients so oncology is one of the obvious specialties but actually there are many specialties that where their patients could benefit from additional palliative care training from their practitioners medical nursing and others so that we've got a kind of two-pronged attack we're training general practitioners and ologists in different medical specialties to extend their own palliative care practice, which has a kind of sparing effect on the demand on 
palliative care specialists, but also we will definitely need a huge increase in the, in the specialist palliative care workforce over the next couple of decades. Yeah, I completely agree. And hopefully that's what we'll be seeing in the future. Now, that was just a brief overview of all the amazing things that you've done. Never mind the book that you've written called With the End in Mind that I want to go on to talk about. And I love telling the story of how I found the book because it's very romantic. I was in a charity shop on a cold winter's day last January before COVID, just setting the scene here. And I was browsing the book section and your book caught my eye. I read the blurb and I thought, yeah, this is what I want to read. And so I did. And there were many tears, but it it's brilliant. And ever since I've been persuading everyone I know to read it because it really changes your perspective on life and death. And it's opened so many doors to having conversations with people that I wouldn't usually have about dying. How did this happen? What was the thought process that went on for you to want to write a book? Oh, Tuba, that's really lovely to hear. And I would say job done because that's that's what I wrote it for. So when we engaged in what was to become palliative care in the 1980s, we really thought that palliative care would educate itself out of needing to even be there within a couple of decades, that the the knowledge of particularly physical symptom management would be infiltrated by education into primary care practice and into hospital practice. And we wouldn't need palliative care specialists anymore. We we would go back to our original specialties. And of course, what happens is you, you make a specialty and then the specialty dedicates time and attention to its specialism and the body of knowledge gradually expands and that's happened in palliative care so there's more to know now than there was when I joined up in 1986 and so 30 years after I'd first joined palliative care thinking you know the whole world needs to know this the whole world will appreciate this knowledge and eventually we won't need to be here anymore I found I was still having exactly the same conversations with patients and families family saying we can't talk about this patients saying please don't tell my family they'll be so upset and particularly the idea that people approaching the ends of their lives were terrified because they'd never seen somebody die and they'd seen Hollywood deaths and soap opera deaths which are always extravagantly ridiculously sensationalized I guess Or they'd seen a person dying, but nobody had explained to them about the respiratory noises that people make when they're deeply unconscious. So they'd misconstrued those noises as drowning, groaning, suffering, choking. And so rather than having seen somebody die completely unconscious, but with noisy breathing, they'd taken away from that a kind of traumatic misunderstanding of what they'd seen and 30 years on that wasn't changing and I guess I just felt very sad and a little bit exasperated and I just thought you know somebody's got to do something about the public understanding of dying we can meet a person and talk with them and enlighten them and change understanding one family at a time but we can't keep doing this one family at a time because Everybody who's ever going to die, which is, of course, everybody, is still not aware 
of what ordinary dying is like. And because they're not aware, I think there are two consequences of that. One is that people are much more frightened than they need to be. But also, if people are uncomfortable during their dying, their family might say, oh, well, you know, they're dying. What else do you expect? So they don't demand this excellence in symptom control that could be possible if we were more demanding about it. And I don't want to suggest that every death is comfortable, but actually in a, in a career of working with somewhere between 10 and 15,000 dying people, I've seen maybe a dozen deaths where I just thought, this is, this is horrid. This is really awful. I'm so, so sorry this is happening to this person. And I would hate this if this was me or, or a member of my family. So there are unpleasant deaths, even with palliative care in attendance. But they're very few and far between. And a little bit like we've improved maternity standards by women knowing what good standards of maternity care look like and then demanding that. I think we need to get end of life better understood by the population so that people are demanding excellence in end of life care. And to do that, they need to be knowledgeable. They need to be not afraid to demand and they need to be clear that reasonable symptom management so that discomfort isn't the biggest topic in a dying person's day that can be achieved and that we ought to be expecting it and requiring it of the health services around that person. So it was an act of desperation, I guess, to take early retirement and wonder what could I do that would make a difference. And around about that time, I just had a very good stroke of luck that um, Radio 4 needed somebody to talk about dying and the production team happened to know someone who knew someone who knew me. <laughs> so I was suggested as the person who could go and do that thing on Radio 4. The broadcast was heard by a literary agent who got in touch with me and said, you know, I've heard you tell a story. In fact, it's one of the stories that ended up in with the end in mind. But he said, I heard you tell a story during that broadcast. Have you got other stories? Uh, have you ever thought about writing a book? And in fact, the, re the way I've kept myself sane through my medical career is by writing out brief notes about really meaningful encounters with patients ever since I was a medical student. So I've got, in a way, a, a folder of field notes, none of them with any names on, of course. So it's all on paper and therefore all had to be anonymous so that if I ever lost it on a train, it, it wouldn't be giving people secrets away. But it gave me lots and lots of stories to reflect on. That's wonderful. That's really wonderful. And there's a, there's a part in the book where you describe dying like you, you briefly did now. And I had an experience with my grandma when she, she died at home. And my mum, who's a GP, did a similar thing where she was explaining to me what was happening at the time. And I didn't realise then that, that that explanation changes the experience so much because it it stops from from jumping to fear and thinking what's happening to this person how how come they're not breathing what are all these noises and once you know what's going on it completely shifts your perspective because part of I think part of the fear is not knowing because obviously that's one thing about death we can all have different beliefs but we don't know what happens afterwards but if we can know what is happening during before before they die whilst they're dying I really think that that takes a lot of the fear out of it. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the correspondence from the book has certainly borne that out. It's been absolutely amazing. Wonderful uh, letters and messages, hundreds and hundreds of messages. And I didn't anticipate any of that. But it's been absolutely lovely. Messages from people who had been traumatised by what they misunderstood as they were watching somebody dying. One person got in touch with me within a week of the book being published to say, I watched my mother dying and I've been in therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder for the last 10 years since that. And yesterday I read your story of you hearing your boss describing the process of dying and the gradual onset of unconsciousness and what the breathing noises signify. And you were describing my mother. And last night I slept through the night for the first time in 10 years. And you just think, wow, you know, it it was worth it for that person. You know, if nobody else reads the book, it was it was worth it. But I've had hundreds and hundreds of those also had things that are really useful for us as a medical profession to kind of hold us to account though so lots of people saying my beloved person was in hospital and we were told that you know their blood pressure was very low or they weren't getting enough oxygen or their kidneys weren't working properly they had sepsis but nobody told us they could die and Actually, when, you, when, when people recount what they were told in hospital, for those of us who were medical graduates, they were given the information that would tell us this person's not going to survive or this person's very unlikely to survive. But unless we say to people who don't understand the consequences of you know, being dehydrated and your kidneys not working very well, for example, unless we say... I'm really worried that this person that you love is so sick that one of the things that might happen here is that they could die. They won't understand it. They won't surmise that. They won't get the right people to the bedside. They won't have the conversations they would wish they could have had. They won't ready themselves. And we can help them to be less traumatized by the event that we can't change by enabling them to see themselves as companions of somebody who is doing their dying now and that they still have a role here at this bedside in creating the safe place, in creating the love around the bed that is so important. And that was the thing that was so terrible for us all, wasn't it, last year? I went back onto the medical register for a while last year and worked back in the NHS, actually in staff support rather than at bedsides. But what I heard over and over again was the staff's enormous distress that the people who mattered most to those patients couldn't be there because of the infection control rules. And that although they were doing their best, and boy, they did a fantastic job, they knew they never could be a replacement for the people that a dying person loves most. So it is really important that those people can be at the bedside and that they can understand what's going on so that they can be good supporters for this person they love, but also so that they are having an experience that says to them, okay, so this is what happens as humans die. And next time I'm dealing with this, I'll be more ready. I will understand the sequence of events. And when it's my turn, yeah, this doesn't look like the best day out ever, but it doesn't look like the worst day somebody's had 
And I think that's really important for us to know. A lot, a lot of people will have been very much more uncomfortable, in a lot more distress over other things that have happened over their lifetime than they will be on the day that they're doing their usually fairly gentle dying. Yeah, that's so true. And I've never thought about it like that. And it does give you some peace to to realise that. And it reminds me of a few weeks ago, actually, at hospital, I was there during a cardiac arrest. And unfortunately, the patient didn't survive. And it was quite a strange experience because it was almost like clockwork. The healthcare staff try and resuscitate the patient, do all in their power that they can. Then if it's unsuccessful, they announce a time of death. And then it's, like I said, like clockwork, go on to the next task, inform the family, the family comes in, have to have the conversation with the family, which is very traumatic, especially if the family's not expecting it. And I just wonder, how can we make that conversation, this scenario, any less traumatic for both sides? Because it's not just for the family, but it's for the healthcare staff as well. I, th- I think you're right. And I think, so let, just just unpicking the story that you've just told. So first of all, cardiac arrest in hospital, one person in five will survive. But we go into every arrest with 100% determination that this person will be the one person in five. We? So we're giving it our all. And I think that's a really important thing for us to be able to look at and say at the end of an unsuccessful attempt at resuscitation, that we did our best, that the statistics were against us from the very beginning. and. Having done our best, we need to complete this task for this person who has died in our care, which is of dealing with their beloved people well, in order for them to be able to start their grieving in the least bad way possible. And sudden death is harder than anticipated dying. So we now have to have a a conversation that the family may not have been as prepared for as they would have been if they'd been sitting alongside a dying person in a designated end-of-life care bed, for example. So we feel awkward because one of the things that's going to happen is we're about to tip somebody's world upside down and they may be expecting it a little bit or they may not be expecting it at all. And that's really, really hard. And in fact, my, my new book, which is coming out in September, the very first story in it is of the awful job that I made of telling a woman that her husband who'd brought, been brought in, collapsed from his place of work, had died in our resuscitation room in the hospital. I was very junior and I did it by the book, you know, check you've got the right person, fire your warning shot, tell the news and step back and let them assimilate it. And she was horrified and completely shocked and hit me and smacked me in the face and then completely collapsed and was distressed and distraught. And they, they, I then watched the most skilled nurse come into the room and kind of unwind time and take this woman back to what did she already know about her husband's health? It turned out he'd already had an MI about several years before and she thought that he was going to die then. 
and she'd noticed that he was less well recently and he'd had more angina recently and she'd asked him not to go to work that morning because she was worried that he didn't look well and in fact what this nurse did was got the wife to tell her story to the point where she understood, the wife understood by having listened to herself telling the story, that she knew her husband had escaped with his life once before, that he was on borrowed time, that he'd been less well recently, and that he had a collapse at work that morning. And by enabling her to tell the story, the nurse got her to a point where she was then able to say, and that collapse was probably another heart attack. And he was brought so that we could see if we could get his heart to start again. It was still beating when he arrived, but it stopped shortly after he arrived and the team worked very, very hard. Your husband was never conscious. He was not aware that this was happening to him, but we were unable to start his heart. And we're so terribly, terribly sad for him and for you. And so sorry to be telling you this information. And somehow that was transformational because she hadn't gone in and checked the person was and given a warning shot, you know, by the book. She'd gone in and had a conversation with somebody until the person had been helped to lay the ground for the bad news that was about to come. And it was just revelational for me that by the book isn't the right way to do it or there needs to be a different kind of book or something like that, that, that this is a conversation that gradually leads somebody to a point where they have to understand a devastating truth. And we can't make it not, not be devastating. But for the person who's breaking that unwelcome news, the unwelcome news is not our fault. And withholding the news is not an option. So we need to see ourselves as the person's companion and assistant and supporter in understanding horrible news rather than just thinking we're breaking bad news. We're not just breaking bad news. We're supporting somebody through the acquisition of dreadful new understanding. And I think if we change our perspective, that not we're doing something to somebody, but we're going to be somebody's companion during something, that actually changes the way we feel about doing it. Wow. I love that, to say that you're a companion and that you will go on the journey together. I think that's really beautifully put. I actually had a teaching session on Breaking Bad News as well a few weeks ago. And like you said, it's, I don't want to say artificial, but it's, you have certain checklists. You do the warning shot, like you said, when you did it, and you follow a structure. And I think that's probably because we need some sort of structure to be able to have such a distressing conversation, because it's always going to be distressing. That's the nature of as it's called, breaking bad news. Yeah. It will never be okay. We will never feel all right at the end of one of those conversations. And it doesn't matter how skillfully we do it, and it doesn't matter how many decades we've been doing it for. So we need to look after ourselves as well. We need to recognise that this takes an enormous chunk of emotional energy out of us and that we require recovery time at the end of it. And the recovery time has to be in a form that's helpful for us. So some people's recovery time will be at the end of a cardiac arrest that actually I 
I will go and talk to the family because I want to see this completed. And at the end of that conversation, I'm going to go on to the next task and the next task and the next task. And tonight when I go home, I'll take my space. But another person actually at the end of a cardiac arrest might need to go and sit with a colleague, whether the person's been successfully resuscitated or not. It's massive, isn't it? So just to go and take a few minutes to talk talk about something else for some people or talk about what just happened for other people. We know that early debriefing, if we force people to do early debriefing after something difficult, is more likely to lead them to have a, a kind of traumatic experience. So we must never force people to debrief. But if they want to talk, we should offer a, li a listening ear. So we have to think about every person who's been involved in that resuscitation attempt has just run a marathon. And what are we going to do to enable them to be well enough to go back to all of the other patients who are in our care and still be the healthcare professional that they need us to be? And it might be that each person needs a different way of recuperating, but there's nobody in that resuscitation attempt team who won't need to recuperate in some way. So we have to just make sure that we're looking after each other. Do you think there's enough support? For hospital staff and if so how do you think we can encourage them more to access this support without feeling weak or without feeling like there's a stigma behind it I was actually lucky enough to be part of the first student-led Schwartz round so Schwartz rounds are a reflective group practice where staff from all disciplines can reflect on the emotional aspects of working in healthcare. My experience of it was really positive and it was amazing to be able to reflect on a difficult case that I'd been a part of. And then to hear consultants, nurses, pharmacists also reflect on that case with me. I know that not all GP practices, for example, or hospital trusts do incorporate Schwartz rounds into their practice. Do you think this is something that could become the norm? So I think we need some good behaviour models from senior people talking about how they do their recovery from difficult experiences at work. I think Schwartz rounds are a really, really interesting way of gaining insights into the way all of us process the difficult things that we come across and going to Schwartz rounds and listening to um, porters for example talking about having uh, whizzed a patient around a hospital in a wheelchair this scan that scan this department that department and then one day actually they're not well enough to get out of bed and they have to go down for another scan and they, they, they're taking them down on a bed and they're not so chatty as they were and then the next time the porter sees this person they're transporting their body to the mortuary and we never stop and think about how we traumatize our portering staff but we do and we ask our domestic staff to come in and they are absolutely wonderful team members they're often the people who patients feel they can chat to and they know a lot of personal things about patients as they chat as they're housekeeping around their beds and yet sometimes they have to come in and help us to clean rooms with you know unimaginable stains in the room because somebody has bled out or somebody's been incontinent as something traumatic has been happening to them and it's not just that that's a difficult situation to walk into 
and to work in for our housekeeping staff, it's often that they also knew the person that this thing happened to who's no longer in the room, but they're imagining how that might have been. Or in the Schwartz round to just listen to a really senior clinician who we've got great admiration for, you know, really senior nurse, very experienced consultant. And we've watched them calmly giving out instructions and holding a whole team together during a really difficult episode. And we thought, oh, I want to be like that when I grow up. <laughs> and then we listened to them recounting how dreadful that experience was for them. And there wasn't a ruffled feather on that swan-like performance when you were in the room with them. And what you realise is that like every swan, they're paddling like mad underneath and we are all doing that. So we need to give each other permission to use the support that organisations offer. And almost all hospitals now have a confidential telephone line and the NHS, um, NHS people offers the same thing. They started it during COVID and it's been very, very well used. Most organisations have access to counselling through occupational health. Many, during COVID, many hospital uh, psychology services began to offer one-on-one -on -one debriefing or support for staff in the hospital. And the difficulty they've got now is that as we go back to normal services, they have to carry their clinical caseloads. But the genie is out of the bottle. We need to think about where the support is. We need to think about each other as each other's supporters. And, you know, like anything else, it's a ladder, isn't it? So we talk about um, pain ladders. Well, there's a psychological support ladder. And maybe the bottom rung is a cup of tea with a colleague, listening to some favourite music on your phone, going outside and looking at the sky for five minutes. And then the next rung up is that I need to talk to somebody. And the next rung up is to notice that actually I'm really not OK. And I need to talk to an expert for some advice. And then we're into perhaps the caseness of being traumatised and needing that specialist help from somebody who can offer support who's, that's trauma-informed so the way they help us to handle it doesn't deepen the trauma but actually rebuilds us and also gives us insights that we can use in the future. The responsibility for looking after a person's well-being at the top is the duty of the organisation but at the centre is the duty of each of us as employees to realise that we are sufficiently important, that our mental well-being is as important as anybody else's. And if we're not OK, we have to say so and we have to find the resources to support us. I think since COVID, we're better at admitting when we feel burnt out. But one of the difficulties in mental health is this cycle that you're in. And that it's so hard to break out of it to try and step out and see that you're not okay. So exactly like you said, I think it is the shared responsibility of yourself, but also those around you, your friends, your colleagues, and most importantly, your employer. And I think for a lot of jobs, that's not the case. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Although we have a responsibility to check in with ourselves and notice how we are, one of the difficulties when we are emotionally and mentally unwell is that we are blunted to noticing how we are. And I speak now 
from personal experience, I had the experience of having a profound episode of depression about, in fact, it is, it's 10 years ago now. And it took me many months to realise that I was sick. So I noticed that um, I was tired and I noticed that it took me longer to work things out and I was less confident about some of my decision making. But actually, by the time I noticed I was sick, I was really, really sick. And I was surrounded by people who could see me going down, but who I wasn't taking any notice of when they expressed concern. And that wasn't because I was brushing away their concerns because I didn't want them to worry. It was because I was completely without insight. And I think that depression, one of the difficulties is that people are without insight. So we also have to look out for each other as well. If I'd been able to notice earlier, I probably wouldn't have needed to take time off work, for example. As it was, eventually I agreed to take a couple of weeks off work and I was off work for five months on medicine, having psychotherapy before I was well enough to go back to work again. And that was huge, helpful insight for me. Um, Once I'd recovered from the idea that as a cognitive therapist, I should be immune to mental illness and be able to make myself better and notice and all the rest of it. It's been really helpful to have that understanding that how depression feels isn't what it looks like how depression feels from the outside for those of us who observe it, even those of us who observe it at close quarters and very frequently. And so we do need to look out for each other but sometimes we can't help people until they're ready to be helped. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Catherine. I tend to think of it as we all wear masks around each other to hide parts of ourselves, but that mask can also then end up hiding those parts from ourselves as well. I guess you could almost look at it as a subconscious defence mechanism to protect ourselves, I don't know. Now, going back to the COVID pandemic, I say going back, but we're still in it, It was such a traumatic time and it was so full of death. I remember seeing the news and it was just figures every day that were rising. And I know some people already have an anxiety around death. Do you think this pandemic has then exacerbated this fear around dying? It's interesting, isn't it? I remember thinking at the time, I never thought I'd live to hear death being said so frequently by the news channels who almost always tell us that people have passed away. So it was very, very interesting, but it was death as data. It wasn't deaths as individuals. And that was, that was very telling. It was very, very interesting that we were all told about the deaths, but we weren't told about the mechanism of dying. Um, nobody discussed what it was like. And it was quite late on that there were reportage teams allowed into a variety of hospitals. And I think King's might have been one of the hospitals that they came into. And so people hadn't got a mental picture, I don't think, of the levels of breathlessness, how difficult it is to talk. And to be able to talk to your family on a phone when you're on high flow oxygen is, is almost impossible. So I think one of the things that happened to staff was that staff who were not used to looking after dying people were now looking after people who were sick enough to die, many of whom got better, but many of whom actually died. 
And they also were conveying those really precious messages between a very sick person and the people who were most important to them in the world. And we're not usually, even those of us who are really experienced end-of-life care practitioners, we don't get to that level of intimacy within families. We normally leave families for those moments of intimacy on their own. So I think this has been an absolute game changer for our workforce. We've suddenly got a workforce that is more aware of the conversations around dying, the companionship of people who are entering into the last part of their dying. They've seen a lot of ordinary dying. They've also seen some extraordinary dying because there was that interesting cohort of people with COVID who had blood levels of oxygen that was so low that ordinarily people would be unconscious. And we don't quite understand why people, some people were not losing consciousness. So they were awake and they were talking and they were watching their numbers change and they were aware that they were dying. And that I think has been very difficult for staff. But mostly what they saw was people following the normal progression from awake to sleepy and not awake very often to unconscious to that end of life breathing, which because people's oxygen levels were low, was almost always a fast pattern that was being driven by low oxygen levels. But at that point didn't represent people being awake and struggling to breathe. And it's important that families know that although they will have had conversations with breathless people early on, by the time they were reaching the very end of their lives, they weren't awake, they were unconscious and not experiencing that level of breathlessness. So I think we've had this journey where staff perhaps are better prepared for end-of-life care from other diagnoses in the future, where some families were allowed to be alongside or, or you know, maybe one or two visitors were allowed for uh, compassionate reasons, but we weren't allow allowed to assemble families around a bed in the way we normally would. And I'm using families loosely here as the people who mean the most to us and sometimes those aren't people that we're related to but they are our important people so I think there's still a lot of work to do for the public to understand the process of dying but maybe there will be less misunderstanding of the process by healthcare professionals so maybe our next campaign could be to start to help healthcare professionals to think of themselves as companions at deathbeds and part of the role of the companion is to explain to everybody what's happening in real time, like your mum did for you, so that they leave that deathbed sorrowful, sure, but not traumatised by a misunderstanding of everything that they've seen. Yeah, it was really strange on the news, wasn't it? Just the data and the deaths and the graphs, but I understand you have to do it for scientific purposes but it really did feel like something out of a horror movie didn't it I'm now imagining how different the news would have been you know they made those little animations to describe Covid and how it affects your body I'm just thinking how, what it would be like if they did one of those animations about dying and what happens to your body during death or something explanatory like that well I think it's really interesting because New Zealand have done that and they did it before Covid so there's a really lovely uh, animation that's on New Zealand television that just explains that 
series of changes that we see in dying people, the, the, the sense of how it doesn't really matter what the diagnosis is, that the process is very similar towards the very end of people's lives, that they feel that they've got less energy, that they need more sleep to recharge their energy that gradually they do less and sleep more, that there can be times when they're caught in that strange hinterland between being properly asleep and being fully awake, where they may be confused and not quite aware of the things that are going on around them, that there can be, for some people, periods of agitation. But gradually, people are becoming more sleepy. They are gradually lapsing into unconsciousness. The breathing changes that we wouldn't normally see that funny breathing of cycles deep to slow and fast and shallow, moving backwards and forwards between them, the gradual onset of pauses in the breathing, longer pauses, and eventually a breath out that turns out to have been the last breath, not because it was special and dramatic like on a soap opera, but because there isn't another breath afterwards after the next pause. The pause just continues. And they've done that in such a lovely way. So it's something like a 60 second short. And it's absolutely fantastic. In fact, I'll see if I can find the link to send to you when we finish talking. Definitely. I'd love to watch that. I don't know how, but New Zealand always seem to be two steps ahead of the game, don't they? Changing the topic slightly, I wanted to ask about your experience of culture and death. Death obviously intertwines with faith, and there are many different cultures and different faiths in our country. From your experience, has the palliative care team been able to accommodate to people of different cultures and different faiths and respecting their wishes when they're dying? Because it can often be very different. I think that's an absolutely brilliant question. and I, I think we're probably not great at that yet. I think that we've developed a model for palliative care that's based on a whole heap of assumptions that nobody meant unkindly but were simply from the traditions that those people came from which were largely white British and Christian and even though practitioners themselves might not have been white or British or Christian those are the ways in which palliative and end-of-life care have evolved in this country and so I think that there's still a job of work to do to enable people whose cultures are different from those structural assumptions in healthcare in general, not just in palliative care, to be able to take the concept of palliative care and then weave it into their own cultural traditions. So we know, for example, that black and ethnic minority patients are underrepresented in their local hospice populations compared with the, the ratio in the population in general. And when we try to find out why that was happening in a hospice where I used to work, talking to cultural leaders in, there was, there's a big mosque nearby and also there was a Sikh temple nearby. And talking to faith leaders there, what we heard it won't, won't surprise you, was that, first of all, the Muslim families in the areas where we lived, and again, that this is a, there are so many different schools within Islam, but this local culture would say, first of all, that it would feel shameful to a family to allow uh, a person who was so sick that they might be dying not to be cared for by their family. 
And so, of course, they're not going to come into the hospice because that would be that would be that would feel like a failure to the family. And also the family might feel that they were being judged to have failed by the community. So we need to think not about how do we change their minds about that, which is what was the first thing that came into the hospice team's head. But how do we offer palliative care to this community in a way that they can be empowered by? So, okay, you you can't come to us. That we, you know, if we ask you to come to us, we're asking you to do our way. We've got doctors who understand about pain relief and nurses who understand about how to help somebody move comfortably in their bed physiotherapists who can help you to get the pillows in the right position the breathless person isn't struggling to breathe too badly um etc etc we've got all of these things how could we offer you those things in a way that helps you to look after the person that you love so much or you want to keep in your house gradually we need to almost offer a menu don't we this is the expertise we've got how can you use our expertise and fit it to your cultural norms and your sets of assumptions and so i mentioned we have a sikh temple nearby and we had a very interesting and lovely experience which was uh, of a young man who was so sick with the surgery that he had recently had, which had been a salvage procedure, which wasn't successful. So he came out of surgery and the surgeon had to say that he hadn't been able to do what had been hoped. And the man now was dying, but also that the wound wasn't closing very well and it was not going to be possible for him to be looked after safely or comfortably outside a clinical setting. He was going to need constant nursing care. And he didn't like being in hospital and he was quite a long way from his spiritual community. So the social worker in the hospital that was looking after him identified that our hospice was a few blocks from his temple and phoned and said, do you think you could manage this level of wound care if the wound care specialists come and work with you? So there's another example, isn't it, of we're experts in what we're expert in, but we're not experts in other things. So how fantastic this man came to our hospice, but the wound care specialists came to advise our nursing team on the best way to look after this really complicated wound. And his family were coming in and out and they were very, very distressed that they couldn't do the prayers for dying people that would have been their cultural norm because that would happen in their home and the priest would come and the holy book would be brought and there would be a ceremony, there would be prayers and then there would be a feast. And the ritual happens in the person's home. So they were distraught that this thing couldn't happen. And we said, well, you know, do it here, do it in in his bedroom. No, 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 because this isn't his home. So we were able to talk again to the people at the temple who understood these things to say, how would it be if what we say is that this is this person's home? And we've got a very big room upstairs in our education centre. Why don't we say that this is an extra room in his home? And it's a room in which he can welcome all of the family and all of the people from the Good Brother who want to come to say prayers with him as he's dying. So that's what we did. So on a Sunday afternoon, I was lucky enough to be on call the weekend that it happened. So I came in and I found this massive heap of shoes 
outside our education room corridor and I took my shoes off and went down to join them and they you know the priest was was brought by a very special taxi we had a we had to do a little bit of jigging about because everybody had to sit on the floor and the patient of course wasn't well enough to sit on the floor but nobody can be higher than the holy book now I would not have known that had this not happened and the only table that we had in the education center didn't raise the book higher than our patient in his bed so we actually had to go down to the library and get some medical textbooks to use as bricks underneath the table to raise the table so the book was higher than the patient to show proper respect to the holy book and the priest was able to come and lead the ceremonies they had made the most wonderful meal which they'd taken to the Gurdwara to be uh, blessed appropriately in the temple and then brought it and we were all fed by their family in the tradition in this education room that was now this family's home for the weekend and it was the most extraordinary experience but what it did was brought the people from the Sikh temple into the hospice to see what we could offer and what the limitations of what we could offer in terms of what they needed would be. So now they are able to work with us when they've got people who are sick. Can we help with this? Can we offer that? Could we create a special space for somebody if they needed to come in and then their dying starts? Can we do for them what we did for this person? So it's been really instructive to us to be able to see that what we can offer isn't a good match for everybody's cultural norms. But if we get our heads together, we can problem solve that and offer what we've got that's acceptable, let them choose from our menu and be flexible enough that actually they can then weave the things that are of enormous cultural importance to them into it. And what was really lovely was that on that afternoon, it wasn't what we've got and what they need. It was us all together being an extended family for this particular wonderful young man dying before his time, absolutely held in, in love and spiritual care by his community. It was, it was mind-blowing for us to be able to see that and to be able to appreciate it and to be so embraced them in it. That's amazing, isn't it? That's such a wonderful and powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. We know that ethnic minorities are less likely to access healthcare, and you just mentioned hospices as well. And I think it's partly because of the fear of lack of acceptance and lack of understanding. Because we know that we have different cultures and it may not be considered the way of this country. And I think something like you've just described is amazing because now you have the trust of that community and they are more likely to come to you for other healthcare needs. I really think it's something we need to incorporate into all aspects of healthcare because I've seen both sides of the story where some healthcare professionals aren't as accommodating or understanding to other people of different cultures and different beliefs. I know that on the other hand, it can be a lot more work for example your team had to think outside of the box and probably had to do extra work to make sure this happened for your patient and maybe some professionals just don't have the time to do that and I know it's 
easier said than done, but I really think this needs to be incorporated into all of healthcare. Because with death, you realise we can all be from different cultures, different faiths, different backgrounds, but we're all going to die. So shouldn't we make that process as easy as possible for everyone? Yeah, I mean, you're right, of course. And also your your note of wonder about the workload, it's, it's easier for a smaller organisation and an organisation that is steered from a central point to be flexible. So standalone charitable hospices make their own rules. Hospices that belong to one of the national organisations like Marie Curie or Sue Ryder still you know, there's a central team, perhaps they've got to go to for permission, but it's not difficult to get permission to do something that's a little bit unusual. But when you're trying to manage a district general hospital or a massive tertiary referral centre, and then finesse the care so that it matches different cultural norms, I think that probably is very difficult. And I suspect that most staff have not stopped to think that currently the whole thing is structured along a particular cultural norm. They think it's just neutral, but it's not neutral. It is white, Anglo-Saxon, Christian or Judeo-Christian, European in its sets of assumptions. And because most staff share those assumptions, they don't even notice that they're doing it. So that that was a real um, wake-up moment for us in our little organisation, in our hospice, to be able to make that journey. I suspect on a hospital level, you'd probably need to make a similar journey on individual departmental levels for people to be able to see, oh yeah, you know, I would never have thought about the book, the height of the table for the book. And yet anybody might have said at this point, you know, would you would you like your spiritual advisor to come? And what they're thinking is, well, you know, we can we can get the the Methodist chaplain, we can get the humanist chaplain, we can get the rabbi, we can, you, why don't you invite your imam, whatever. But the idea that there might be all sorts of other things then that need to be changed in order that tradition is properly respected probably wouldn't occur to people. I, I think what was lovely for us was that we didn't know what we didn't know and they didn't mind that we didn't know and they helped us to get it right by showing us under different circumstances, maybe a different family, maybe a, a different leader at the temple might have come to us to tell us and maybe telling we would have found more difficult than inviting and showing turned out to be. You see what I mean? So it's, it's, it's even about the way we have the conversation with each other. If you don't know that you don't know, you've got a complete blind spot. Once you realise that there are bits that you don't know, it starts to invite you to wonder what else it hasn't even occurred to you you don't know yet. That's the problem we've got, isn't it, in trying to break open people's minds about their cultural assumptions when we're actually not all the same. And I think it's very difficult also for people whose tradition is almost the same, but not. So I'm thinking, for example, of people of Eastern European extraction who may belong to one of the Orthodox Christian traditions. They look like Anglo-Saxon people, if you like. They're, they're white. They're not brown or black people. So now it's even easier to make assumptions that this person will 
you know, we'll invite their priest in, but actually the, the traditions around that will be very, very different. Or for British people who've converted to Islam. And so it doesn't strike you straight away that their spiritual requirements and the, the richness of support they would get from their spiritual tradition is going to come from Islam. So you make all kinds of assumptions about their Britishness, their white Britishness, that then undermine that the essence of their person is that they've been brought up in a Muslim tradition or they moved to voluntarily cherish a Muslim tradition and we've overlooked that aspect. So it's so easy to get it wrong and we need to be able to meet each other in a in a dialogue that puts love and forgiveness at the very front of it so that as we get it wrong that's the next step towards getting it right rather than the first step towards being offended or causing offence. Absolutely I think you've hit the nail on the head there. In order for us to become a more fair and equal society we have to look at people's experiences and often that's experiences of people who are less advantaged than we are and that means looking at different races, cultures, religions and gender and the responsibility for that lies with everyone. I wanted to end by talking about grief to see if there was any advice you could give our listeners about dealing with grief. Three years ago, I started by saying, now you have to understand that I'm not an expert on grief. And I've done an enormous journey since I wrote this book. So you still have to understand that I'm not an expert in grief, but I've seen a lot of grieving. First of all, let's just understand that grief is the thing that happens when something or someone that we love is temporarily or permanently lost to us and there is no way around it there is only through it and it's awful and it cannot be made better by outside it can only be carried and what we can do as people who are supporting a grieving person is be the companions they need and to be the companion they need we have to ask what it is that they need and perhaps we need to give them a menu because grief is so paralyzing in terms of being able to think and and focus and have attention that if people say you know if you want anything just call me yeah yeah they're never going to call because they when they want something they can't think of calling at the same time so it can be very helpful to say I'm always free on Wednesdays I could walk your dog to call and say I'm on my way to the supermarket now are you okay for the staples? Do you need milk, bread, vegetables, tea bags, whatever? Just help them to have a little bit of focus. I drive past your house every morning and every evening. Do you want me to do the school run for the next few days while you try and get your head around what's going on? So practical things, or if we're further away to be able to say, I got a quiet evening this evening. If you'd like some company just to, you know, watch a film online or somebody just to sit and chat to, or we can just drink a cup of tea and not say anything, but you won't be on your own. Would that help? Finding ways of being companions, sending messages, saying I'm thinking of you, knocking on the door with a pie that they can stick in their freezer, whatever it is, but not avoiding, not thinking, oh, I don't know what to say, so I won't say anything. Or, or if I mention that their person has died, I might make them even more sad, so I won't mention it. You can't make them more sad. You can't make the dead person be more dead. What people love is that we remember their person. So to be able to say, I heard that 
and the person's name has died and I am so sorry. I was thinking about and the person's name and that great day we had when this thing happened. And they love to hear these extra slices of this person's life being given back. So we will not make them sadder by talking about it, but we will make them more isolated by avoiding in the hope that avoiding makes it better. It doesn't make it better, it just makes it lonely. So this I've learned from the community of grieving people who've all got in touch with me since I wrote a book about dying to explain about grieving, to explain about the loneliness, to explain about seeing a neighbour walking towards them who crosses the road rather than bump into them because they don't know what to say and how isolating and lonely making that is. So we need to really step up our game about bereavement. We need to be able to say, I heard your news and I am terribly sorry. And it is okay to say that. You won't make it worse. We will, we'll have colleagues who are off work grieving. We'll know that they're due back in work. Let's drop them a little note before they come back to say, we're looking forward to seeing you. Let's find out how they want to be greeted. So let's check that somebody in their department has got the job of talking to them to find out when you come back, how do you want us to be with you? You know, I, I know uh, one team who actually gave somebody a particular mug, said stick that in your drawer. But if you feel you want to talk about what's happened, put it on your desk and that'll be the signal. And we'll know it's okay to talk about it. That's really clever, isn't it? It's just a way of saying, we're not going to just keep asking you, are you okay and drive you bonkers? We know you're not okay, but if you want to talk about not being okay, here's the signal and then we, we will respond. So just being kind and kindness isn't isolating someone, it's offering to be their companion. It's interesting how much we talked about companionship, isn't it, today, that actually it boils down to, in the end, we're social animals. We're hardwired to work in groups. That's what's made us survive through evolution and it turns out that's still our superpower still our strength even when we're dealing with the very end of life and bereavement and the aftermath of somebody dying what a poignant way to end the episode with such wise words thank you so much Catherine. i've really enjoyed speaking to you and i feel like i could talk to you for hours well, I've loved talking to you. And you said something at the very beginning that I've been intrigued by, that having, having read with the end in mind, you feel maybe it's prompted you to have discussions that you mightn't have had or say things in a way you mightn't have thought to say them before. I'd just like to know a little bit about how that's been for you. Of course. So I've had the experience of my grandma dying, which I mentioned before. But a year after that, my aunt also died way before her time she was a wonderful person and it was it was traumatic for my family and my cousins and at the time you don't speak that much about it like we've mentioned but after reading your book it was almost like something switched and I felt more comfortable having certain conversations it even made me start to think about my own death, which I'm young. I wouldn't usually be thinking about all the time, but it made me have conversations with my friends as well and my mum. I spoke to my mum about what she would want when she's dying, which I would never have done before. 
And I was able to have these conversations because I was less fearful about it. I know everyone's going to die, but reading your book, reading the stories and the way you've written it, it made me think, yes, my loved ones are going to die. Yes, it's going to be sad and I won't be able to replace them and I will experience grief. But also, it's going to be okay. And I know you've had countless emails, but this book really, really is life-changing and it's one that I will hold close to my heart for a very long time. I'm really, really glad that's, there we are. There's another reason why it was worth writing it. And that's, that's lovely. Thanks, Jude. Thanks for telling me. So, so the, the next book is more about how we, how we hold ourselves during those conversations and not just death conversations, but, you know, all those important conversations where it's so important that I'm worried that I will get it wrong. So I put it off. And, you know, whether that's asking somebody out on a date or it's talking to your mum about what her wishes are around her deathbed, they just are such important conversations. And yet we've got that feeling of awkwardness, haven't we? And one of the things that I that I realised from the correspondence from with the end in mind is lots of people have this sense of important conversations and not quite sure how to get in and things that they, you know, I have to, I have to tell my mum that she's got to tell me everything that she wants or I need to tell my kids to listen to me so that I can tell them exactly what I want and it occurred to me that everybody seems to think that this is about telling you know giving somebody a really good talking to when in fact these conversations are really about listening giving somebody a really good listening to so that's why the book is called listen Well, I will be ordering that as soon as it comes out. (laughs) I wish you all the best. And if you write any more books, I will definitely have them all. (laughs) Marvellous. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Tupa. What a lovely conversation. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this slightly longer episode with the wonderful Dr. Catherine Mannix. Make sure to follow her on Instagram if you want to keep up to date with her latest book releases. I've actually got her new book, Listen, sitting on my table waiting for when I finish editing this episode. And ironically, I am sick of listening to my own voice. So I'm going to end it there. 